Hello, PRC and friends. I'm coming to you in a little different form than we normally are on this podcast feed because we did not manage to press record on our recorder for the Sunday morning sermon. But rather than leave you without something here, I wanted to be sure that we got some study of God's Word in, and so I want to share with you what I'm going to think of as the audiobook version or the podcast version of our sermon for this week. The text that we are going to read now is John chapter 6, verses 35 to 48, although our main focus will be 41 to 48, and this is the Word of God. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So two weeks ago, we looked at verses 35 to 40 of John chapter 6. It was the beginning of Jesus' bread of life discourse. And in that study, we found two significant truths. First, we saw that Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, the true source of eternal spiritual life. The one who comes to Jesus in faith will have eternal life. We also saw in verses 37 to 40 a glimpse of the eternal plan of God, an agreement, a covenant within the Holy Trinity in which God would save a people for himself. I called that sermon Panem et Pactum, That's Latin for bread and covenant. And today, as we go further, we're really seeing Panop et Pactum 2, because the same themes from the prior message are present. We'll see a warning against unbelief. We'll see a revealing of God's eternal plan. We'll see a reminder that Jesus is the bread of life and that faith in Jesus leads us to eternal life. Now, before we jump in, I want to remind you of something that I try to say often. Providence Reformed Church is, by name and by doctrine, happily so, a Reformed Church. And I want for our church to be the sweetest, kindest, most gracious Reformed Church you've ever seen. As pastor, I'm committed to calling us to be kind, gentle, welcoming to those who don't understand salvation in a Reformed way. We will not be harsh. We will not be nasty. We will not put people down for not seeing what we see when it comes to the mysteries of the sovereignty of God in salvation. So, if you're hearing my voice and you're not convinced of a Reformed understanding of salvation, please know I welcome you to to listen, to be a part of what we do. Why do I mention this? Well, today's passage is full of theology as we unpack just some of the deep truths of the sovereignty of God in our salvation. 
As we dive into our portion of Scripture for today, I want to hear the Word of God. I want us to rejoice in what God teaches, but I also want us to be loving and gentle with each other as we realize we're handling a topic that many of us find beautiful, while others find it confusing or just plain difficult. As we study, we're going to find three application points. Point number one, guard against unbelief. Guard against unbelief. John 6 verses 41 and 42 says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The context of this discussion between Jesus and the religious teachers in the synagogue at Capernaum is what has led us to the repeated use of the bread metaphor. Yesterday, in the biblical account, Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 people, that's men and not counting women and children, in a secluded spot across the Sea of Galilee. That crowd followed Jesus to Capernaum, hoping to see that they might get more miraculous bread from him. Jesus told them to believe. They asked for a sign so that they could believe. Maybe, maybe some more miraculous bread from heaven, Jesus, maybe? In the crowd's request we saw a reference made to the manna that God gave to Israel during the Exodus. Jesus told the crowd that the manna, it was never the true bread from heaven. Yes, manna was bread from heaven given by God the Father, but no, it was not the ultimate bread from heaven. The manna in the wilderness was a type, a sign, a pointer to something greater. The manna is a foreshadowing of the person who would come down from heaven to give eternal life to everyone who would receive it. Jesus then spoke with clarity to give substance to the sign. Jesus says he is the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus said that he's the bread of life. Jesus said that all who come to him and believe in him will have spiritual life forever. In Exodus, people ate the bread that God supplied so they could physically live in the desert. From now on, all who want to live forever will, in a figurative sense, eat the bread of life by coming to Jesus in faith and repentance to receive his forgiveness and grace. In verse 36, Jesus pointed out the fact that the crowd did not believe. Verses 37 to 40, Jesus pointed out that the ones who will believe in him, those who will come to him, are the ones given to him by his father from the beginning. But this crowd did not believe. Now, one might hope that the religious teachers would hear Jesus' word, let them sink in those words, and maybe they'd change their minds. One might hope that they would repent and believe. Jesus had, after all, given a clear proof of his deity when he fed that crowd of thousands across the sea. But what do we see in the teachers? We see unbelief. They're stuck on the phrase Jesus used when he said that he came down from heaven. Many in Capernaum, they knew Jesus' family. The Savior had grown up in the town of Nazareth, not very far away. Certainly, when Jesus began to have a public ministry that made a public impact, the Jewish teachers, they would have sent some people to investigate his background. And they discovered that Jesus had been raised by Joseph the carpenter and Mary, Joseph's wife. The religious teachers assume that if they know Jesus as family, it's impossible that Jesus came down from heaven. After all, claiming to have come down from heaven is claiming to be deity, to be God in the flesh. What the teachers missed, of course, was that Jesus, though raised by Joseph and Mary, 
was not conceived in the usual way. Mary was a virgin. The power of the Spirit of God came upon her to cause her to conceive without the participation of a human male. This is the Christmas story, folks. And the baby born to Mary is God incarnate, God in the flesh. Jesus is simultaneously truly God and truly man, possessing a dual nature that neither confuses nor denies either his deity or humanity. Jesus is God who came down from heaven and took on human flesh. In this instance, in this story, the teachers were too smart for their own good. They thought they knew too much. They didn't even imagine that there might be something greater going on than they could understand. Their this-worldly knowledge blinded them to the truth that would save their very souls. Friends, be careful, because the failure of the teachers, the temptation to trust your own brain and your own wisdom over the Word of God, that's a temptation for us, too. We think we're so wise. We think we're so scientific. We think that our scientific understanding can solve every problem and explain every mystery. But can I simply say to us all, we can't? We don't know all there is to know. We can't fix all there is to fix. And if we only allow ourselves to trust our own thinking, we're in deep trouble. Guard against unbelief. God has told you in his word what's true. It may be hard to accept. It may be hard to imagine. But we must make a choice. Either you will believe God or you'll believe yourself. If you believe yourself, you're going to have a hard time believing what God's told you about creation, about humanity, about salvation, about sin, about himself. For you who don't yet know Jesus, watch out for unbelief. Your flesh will try to convince you, as the religious teachers were convinced, that Jesus' claims are impossible. But God has put into the soul of every human being the knowledge that God exists. Every person on earth knows that there's, there's more out there than we can see. Every person on earth knows that there is a perfection to which we've never lived up. Every person knows that there's a God. And every person is accountable to that God, whether you wish to believe in him or not. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20 read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In a vast universe, we know so very little. Do not suppress the truth of God because you think you've got the universe figured out. Don't turn your back on God because you want to be the ruler of your own life. Submit to the God who made you and run to Jesus before it's too late. And Christian, you too, if you're hearing me, need to guard against unbelief. In our world, there are many voices which claim to be Christian and which wallow in unbelief and doubt. There are many who think that they can step away from the Word of God, deconstructing the faith for what seems more logical to their minds or more palatable to their desires. But let me say to you that any step away from the Word of God is a step into destructive unbelief. Either you're the highest authority for truth, or God is. 
If you rely on you, you rely on the flawed, on the unreliable, on the limited. Relying on God is the only way to rely on the holy, on the perfect, on the omniscient. And to rely on God, you must rely on his holy word that reveals to us the Lord and his ways. So for you and me, Christians, guard against unbelief by running to and embracing the scripture. As we said a couple weeks ago, one might think that the unbelief of this crowd of teachers is a sign that Jesus was not accomplishing his plan. And when we said that, we then looked at verses 37 to 40, a passage showing us that Jesus was, in fact, going to perfectly accomplish the eternal plan of God. Well, now that we've seen unbelief again, we'll see that plan once more, too. Point number two, glorify God for your salvation. Glorify God for your salvation. Verses 43 and 44 say, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus responds to the grumbling of the teachers with an utterly profound statement, one rich with doctrine, one that plays a major role in shaping our soteriology. That means the doctrine of salvation. Jesus tells them not to grumble about what he said. Jesus makes it clear that these men are not grumbling because of any lack of evidence or any truthfulness or lack of truth in Jesus' claim. They're grumbling because they've not been gifted by God to see the truth. In a nutshell, verse 44 tells us that mankind without a supernatural work of God will never believe. It leads us to the conclusion that all who do believe have been changed by God And as we saw in earlier verses, all who believe, who come to Jesus in faith, Jesus will keep and raise up on the last day. Let's take a moment to work slowly through each phrase of verse 44, as every part of this verse matters. Jesus begins, no one can. This is a phrase with an absolute negative. No one, not any person at all, can, has the ability to do a certain thing. There is no human being can do whatever it is that Jesus is about to say, and there are no exceptions. What can no one do? No person has the ability to come to Jesus. Now, we're going to see in the next phrase how people do come to Jesus, but we must first see that no person, no sinful human being in his or her own power has the ability to come to Jesus. So what does it mean to come to Jesus? Let's ask that first. Well, the verses that precede this one have told us what it means to come to Jesus. To come to Jesus is to believe in him with saving faith. In verse 35, these are set as parallels. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the sentence Jesus is here speaking opens with the fact that no person possesses the ability to come to him with saving faith Mankind on our own is totally unable to believe in Jesus in a saving way. We are helpless and hopeless unless God intervenes. Now, we also know that Jesus has spoken in verses 35 to 40 of those who will come. That gives us hope. No one can come to Jesus unless a particular thing takes place. That's our point here. What must happen? Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The only way that any human being will come to Jesus in faith so as to be saved, 
is if the father draws that person to do so. Here is a significant question and a significant point of doctrinal theological contention between certain groups. What does Jesus mean when he uses the word draw in this verse? You know, in English, the word draw can mean several different things. Draw can mean to make a picture, a sketch. That's obviously not what Jesus means. Draw can mean to the depth of a boat beneath the surface of the water. Someone might say, ooh, that's a big ship. It draws 10 feet of water. It's 10 feet below the surface to its waterline. But that's not what Jesus means. When people disagree with other over the meaning of the word draw in John 6:44, the disagreement is between two concepts. And for our purposes, let's use the words woo and pull. To draw someone might mean to woo them, that is to speak to them in such a way as to work upon their emotions so they might become inclined to or persuaded to what the wooer wants. A man who seeks to woo a woman to be his wife It's a man who might do kind things and display true character so as to win her affection. You know, many a church and many a teacher in history has interpreted the word draw as a wooing. Where I grew up, this was certainly the more common interpretation. Pastors told me that Christ speaks tenderly to us, calling to us, wooing us toward himself. Those who willingly choose Christ are saved. Those who reject his wooing are lost. But some people think of the word drawing as more of a pulling than a wooing. A black hole in space might draw in a passing asteroid, pulling it by force of its gravity. A cowboy in the Old West might draw his gun, pulling it from its holster by the strength of his hand. A person might draw water from a well by lowering a bucket in and then pulling that bucket up with the water it contains. A nurse might draw your blood using a needle and a vial to pull blood from your body for the purpose of a lab test. So the question is, what does Jesus mean when he says God the Father must draw us if we are to come to him and be saved? Is the Savior saying that the Father woos us, or is the Savior saying that the Father forcibly pulls us to himself by his mighty power? And how can we know? In this instance, a biblical Greek word study might help us. The Greek word that John writes for us to represent Jesus' teaching is a form of the word helkuo. If you want to write that in an English transliteration, you could write H-E-L-K-U-O. That would be fine. This word occurs eight times in the New Testament. Five of them are in John's Gospel. I want to read all the occurrences to you. And I want us to see if we can see a consistent meaning. Now, let me first give you the clearest meanings. John 18, 10a. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Here, draw means to forcibly pull a sword from its sheath. John 21, verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Here the word is is translated uh, haul, to forcibly bring a net up out of the water. John 21, 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish. Again, helkuo is translated haul, 
physically grabbing, pulling it by the force of your power. In Acts 16, 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, here comes the word, and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. The same Greek word for draw in John 6, 44 is here translated drag, forcibly seized and pulled to a place. Acts 21, verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. This is the same as just before. Helkuo there means to drag by force. James 2, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Here again, this time figuratively, yes, the word is being used for being dragged. So what we can see here is that six of the eight uses of Helkuo in the New Testament are obviously and unquestionably meaning to pull with force, not to woo. What about John twelve thirty two? That's a verse that has Helkuo in it, and it looks like it could be suspect. Jesus says, And I when I be if I sorry, and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. Some suggest that the word draw must mean to woo here, as we know that not all individuals on earth will be saved. Since we do not believe in universal salvation, this drawing must be, they conclude, a resistible wooing, not a forcible pulling. But the context of John 12, 32, it's not at all about the drawing of individuals. Contextually, Jesus speaks this line after Greeks, that's Gentiles, approach the disciples wanting to meet Jesus. The verse is speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus and him saving people out of all nations, not just the Jews, but all people, all kinds of people are going to be drawn. This is not suggesting that God is saying he's going to draw all men individually in the same way. If we're honest with Scripture, John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's saying that no person can come to Jesus unless that person is brought to Jesus by the power of God. This is why we teach that God must draw us, pulling us to himself by the force of his mighty power in order for us to come to him in faith for salvation. We do not teach that God puts forth a wooing and leaves the final result to our will. Instead, we teach that God, by his drawing, changes our will so that we will come to him in faith and repentance. See how perfectly this thought is in keeping with the things Jesus has already taught us? In verse 37, Jesus told us all the Father gives him will come to him. He'll raise him up on the last day. Verse 39, Jesus makes it clear that the will of the Father is that Jesus would lose none of those the Father has given him, but raise them up on the last day. Verse 40, Jesus says all who look on him and believe in him will come, and he'll raise them up on the last day. And in verse 44, the Savior adds the fact that no one can come to him unless drawn by, pulled forcibly by the Father, and he will raise them up on the last day. What we can glean here is a picture of the eternal plan of God to save a people for himself. It's the pactum salutis in Latin. Before there was time, God planned to rescue a people out of lost humanity to display his glory. God made an intra-Trinitarian covenant, a covenant of redemption, in order to save this people for himself. 
God the Father elected this people to salvation before he ever created, choosing them to be a gift for his Son. God the Son planned to come to earth and take on flesh in order that he might save this people, losing none of all the Father has given him. God the Holy Spirit would convict people of sin and then indwell the saved, sanctifying them and keeping them. The Father, by his Spirit, will draw all he has given to the Son in faith, Without fail, each person in the Trinity works together to carry out the eternal plan of the triune God. We see here two significant biblical doctrines relating to our salvation. First, we see that man is totally unable, without the sovereign working of God, to come to God. That's not because that God is doing something to push them away. It's because we're sinners, and because we are sinful, we can't come unless God brings us. Second, we see that God exercises irresistible grace, sovereignly drawing, powerfully, unfailingly pulling his chosen into the faith. But now look at verses 45 and 46. Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. The word for draw in 644 certainly means to pull by force. But here we see the way that we experience that force is not at all violent or harsh. Instead, the beautiful way God draws us, irresistibly and powerfully draws us, is by his holy and mighty word working a supernatural change in our wills. Jesus is here citing Isaiah 54, 13. And this verse, along with many other promises of the new covenant that are found in the old, points to the fact that once the new covenant comes, the people of God will be changed and they'll have personal relationships with the Lord. No longer will being part of the covenant of God be a thing of laws and works and what family you're born into. Being a part of God's covenant family will mean to have a new heart having what the Old Testament refers to as a spiritual circumcision. It's, a, it's being born again into the family of God. In verse 37, Jesus said, All the Father gives to him will come to him. Here in verse 45, Jesus draws another parallel, saying, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So, the drawing of God that leads to saving faith has its source in the eternal plan of God to save a people for himself— And the faith that saves a soul has its foundation in hearing and believing the word of God. But who has seen and heard God the Father? Jesus makes it clear this all must be done through Jesus. Only Jesus has seen the Father. Only Jesus can save a human soul. Jesus is the person of the Holy Trinity sent by the Father to rescue us from wrath. And no person hears from God. No person believes in God apart from Jesus. So putting these verses together, we see that none of us could ever come to God for salvation on our own. The only way for any of us to be saved is through the mighty working of God, changing us, teaching us, drawing us to the Son. Whom will God draw to himself? All the Father has given to the Son will come. Before the dawn of time, the Father gave a people to the Son, and every single person who's a part of that gift of the 
of the Father to the Son before creation will come to Jesus, believing the word of God and finding salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And all who come, every last one, Christ will raise up to life on the last day. He will lose not a one. Glorify God for your salvation. Are you saved? Acknowledge that your salvation is the working of God, not your own. Your belief is the result of God powerfully drawing you, not the result of you making your own wise decision. And this work of God moves you from being dead in sin to being eternally alive in Christ. Praise God. Thank God. Trust God to keep you. Share the gospel knowing that others will be saved in just the same way. And live to honor the God who planned your salvation and brought it to pass. And one last thought here before we wrap up. Lest anybody hear this and think, oh, well, I might not ever be saved. What if I'm not part of the elect? Listen to what the Savior says in our final point. This is what you need to hear. Point number three, believe in Jesus for life. Believe in Jesus for life. John 6, verses 47 and 48 read, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. What's the ultimate truth the Savior wants you to see? He says it here with a double truly. Whoever believes has eternal life. That's what Jesus wants you to hear. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you willing to confess your sin, surrender your life, and ask Jesus for mercy? If you believe like that, you have eternal life. You need never worry about being predestined or not. The truth at the end of the matter is all who believe are saved. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He, Jesus, is the food provided by the Father to give you eternal life. If you won't believe in him, you won't taste life. If you entrust your soul to Jesus, you'll feed on the bread of life and you'll live forever. Guard against unbelief. Trust in Jesus and know that he will give you life. And when you do trust Jesus, give him the glory, knowing that you could never have believed were it not for the supernatural working of the Father to draw you to himself.